it's Muppeturgy, and we're ready to get spooky with the Alice Cooper episode of The Muppet Show! <laughs> Isn't it such a pleasure to hear our spooky turgy theme music again after so long? I know I'm glad to hear it, and I'm glad you're here. I'm David Levy, here today with me are... Christy Bauer. Adam Grossworth. And Michal Richardson. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. We have some corrections and additions this week. From the Gilda Radner episode, Eric Akawi let us know that there is, in fact, a TV movie about the Lufthansa heist called, appropriately, The Big Heist, which aired on A&E in 2001. It also inspired a pivotal plot point in Goodfellas, a very famous movie which apparently none of us have ever seen. Guilty. Uh, in the Pearl Bailey episode, I talked about Julie Andrews and Richard Harris being on the Ed Sullivan show to promote Camelot, which is both true and not true. Julie Andrews starred opposite Richard Burton in Camelot, and they went on the Ed Sullivan show, and that helped turn the show's fortunes around. Richard Harris was then in the film version of Camelot and went on the Ed Sullivan show later. To promote the film. He also then later did a Broadway revival, which was also filmed for HBO. So I was both wrong and not wrong, but it's been eating at me. And so here I am, Mia Culpa. We are here this week to talk about season three, episode seven of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of March 28th, 1978, and aired in New York on October 30th, 1978, very appropriately less appropriately in the UK on November 24th. Oh, well, it was number seven in the air order. So same as production order. That's unusual. Um, It aired after Loretta Lynn, which we will talk about next week. In the news, it's another uh, week for the New York City newspaper strike. So we're getting our news again from ultimate70s.com and the Chicago Tribune. The headlines were like either depressing or just boring this week. Uh, But down at the bottom of the list, there were two that I found strange and delightful. The famous RCA symbol of Nipper the dog with a phonograph is being resurrected, reports George Lazarus. RCA Corp plans to spend $11 million over the next 12 months on product advertising that will include Nipper. The logo, conceived nearly 80 years ago, will also appear on products, trucks, and literature. Literature? Like, is it going to appear on, like, editions of The Sun Also Rises? or Yes. (laughs) <laughs> which will be delivered to you by trucks. <laughs> Very important. But Nipper's real cute. Nipper looks like uh, Elvira, or Elvira looks like Nipper. So, you know, important dogs in history. Deliberate. And a Houston department store thought it would be humorous, which is in quotes for some reason, to offer in its Christmas catalog the opportunity for $94,125, or in today's dollars, 427765 to have a dinner party with Walter Cronkite and other celebrities as guests. The problem is, Sackowitz's department store didn't mention it to Cronkite, and he is furious, a CBS spokesman said. CBS is demanding that Sackowitz's cease and desist from sending out the catalogs, destroy all catalogs still on hand, and notify all who have received them that Cronkite's name was included without his authorization. I have so many questions. Sounds like he would be really fun at a dinner party. (laughs) (laughs) Like, was it just so expensive that they assumed that nobody would buy it? Yes, that that's the joke. Who were the other celebrities? Why why didn't they sue? Maybe they didn't know about it. Maybe Cronkite's the only one who got word of it. 
I guess. What if someone did buy it? Then what? I love the idea of hosting a furious Walter Cronkite. What a great party. <laughs> right? <laughs> it didn't occur to me to try to Google this and see if I could find the ad. Like, I bet there was a disclaimer on it. I'm going to look for it later. But anyway, that's the news, such as it is. On the Cashbox pop charts, the number one song is Hot Child in the City. Uh, I looked just because he's the guest. Alice Cooper's How You Gonna See Me Now is number 71. That song is not in this episode. And the number one album is, say it with me, Grease. On TV, following them up on CBS uh, is It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, of course, and the premiere of Puff the Magic Dragon. And in fact-checking that it was, in fact, the premiere, I learned that the Orlando Magic's mascot is Stuff the Magic Dragon, which was designed by Acme Mascots, which is Bonnie Erickson's company. Yeah, Muppet designer Bonnie Erickson. It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown is half melancholy Halloween special half harrowing world war ii film (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah i always forget that there's a whole snoopy there's a whole section where i mean like you know snoopy is like you know dressed as the the great flying ace weeping at the piano about flanders fields and i'm just like what are we doing anyway I, i i watch it every year and with each passing year, I get more and more perplexed by it. Maybe you should stop. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should seek the stage rights. <laughs> Maybe you should wait out in the field and see if the Great Pumpkin tells you what to do. He won't. Oh. <laughs> um. Speaking of maybe we should stop, uh, on ABC for Halloween, Terror in the Promised Land, a documentary special about training the PLO, um, yeah, you know, forget. Um, and on NBC, uh, Little House on the Prairie, this week's episode is Harriet's Happenings. Walnut Grove finally gets a newspaper, but when the editor allows Mrs. Olson to write a gossip column, she slanders everyone in town. We are not turning into a Little House on the Prairie podcast, but I, after sure? last week, I just was like, wait, what's this one about? And I did watch it. It was a very good palate cleanser to last week's horrible episode. Much more what I remember that show being. That was followed by the uh, TV movie Summer of My German Soldier, which was based on the 1973 novel of the same name about a Jewish girl in Georgia during World War II who befriends an escaped German prisoner of war. It starred Christine McNichol and Bruce Davidson and Esther Roll, who won an Emmy for the role, uh, as well as Barbara Barry. This title was like super familiar to me, but I actually found very little about it online i feel like it gets spoken about relatively frequently on twitter as an example of like i can't believe this shit because every time some new book that asks you to like view the holocaust through like a sympathetic nazi's eyes like they're like we've been doing this for decades like we should know better is this one of those books that got assigned to people in school and those people are just a little older than i am so i never read it Probably, but not to me. So yeah, I don't know why the title, like I just saw the title and was like, oh yeah, that thing. And then I read about it. And I was like, wait, I have no idea what this is. And there was definitely some novel within the last year or two that had a similar premise of like, it was a, like a romance novel about one of the good Nazis. And in the outrage that ensued around that, I feel like this novel got invoked a lot. Gotcha. Mostly I'm like, why were they shipping the POWs all the way to Georgia from Germany? That doesn't make any sense to me at all but i'm sure that was not the point anyway you're asking the wrong questions 
I, yes, I often do. Hey, tonight our special guest star is one of the world's most talented but frightening performers, Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper played King Herod on two different recordings of Jesus Christ Superstar. Apparently he was also some sort of rock and roll musician. What up with that? Are you saying Jesus Christ Superstar is not rock and roll? Well, I would say that the King Herod number is not rock and roll. Asking the right questions now. Vincent Damon Fernier was born in 1948 in Detroit to a religious family with deep roots in the Church of Jesus Christ, a denomination that spun off from the Latter-day Saints when Joseph Smith died. So they also consider the Book of Mormon to be scripture, but they are not themselves Mormons. I found this fascinating. I could do a whole podcast about this, but we're not going to go down that route. Uh, It is relevant, however, because Cooper's grandfather was president of the church, which is the highest-ranking spiritual authority in that church. In high school, he organized some of his friends for a talent show into a Beatles parody group called the Earwigs. They had such a good experience, and they were so well-received, they decided to have a go at being a real band. By 1967, they started playing shows in L.A. and decided to relocate there by the end of the year. They cycled through a couple other names before landing on the name Alice Cooper in 1968. That's right, the band was named Alice Cooper before the person was. They chose the name in part because it sounded wholesome and would provide a funny contrast to their elaborate stage show with looks inspired by some of their favorite movies, including Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and Barbarella. They were discovered by manager Shep Gordon. You might remember him from the documentary Supermensch that came out in 2013. He brought the band to Frank Zappa, who was looking to sign weird new groups to his record label. Their first album came out on Zappa's label in 1969. It was called Pretties For You, and is much more of a psychedelic art rock album than what I expected from knowing his more heavy metal-influenced later work. 1969 is also when Alice Cooper more or less single-handedly invented the new genre of shock rock. Apparently by mistake. I'm just going to read Wikipedia's description of the incident. Alice Cooper's shock rock reputation apparently developed almost by accident at first. An unrehearsed stage routine involving Cooper, a feather pillow, and a live chicken garnered attention from the press. The band decided to capitalize on the tabloid sensationalism, creating in the process a new subgenre, shock rock. Cooper claims that the infamous chicken incident at the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival concert in September 1969 was an accident. A chicken somehow made its way onto the stage into the feathers of a feather pillow that they would open during Cooper's performance, and not having any experience with farm animals, Cooper presumed that, because the chicken had wings, it would be able to fly. He picked it up and threw it out over the crowd, expecting it to fly away. The chicken instead plummeted into the first few rows occupied by wheelchair users, who reportedly proceeded to tear the bird to pieces. The next day, the incident made the front page of national newspapers, and Zappa phoned Cooper and asked if the story, which reported that he had bitten off the chicken's head and drunk its blood on stage, was true. Cooper denied the rumor, whereupon Zappa told him, well, whatever you do, don't tell anyone you didn't do it. Wikipedia could use some slightly better editing. (laughs) Well, couldn't we all? (laughs) They struggled to find their niche and moved back to Michigan, and it wasn't until their third album that they had a hit single, the song I'm 18, which reached 21 on the Billboard Hot 100. That got the attention of Warner Brothers Records, who bought their contract from Zappa. Their first Warner Brothers album broke through and hit number 35 on the Billboard Albums chart. More successful albums and more outrageous stage shows ensued. Cooper began appearing with a live boa constrictor on stage, which you'll see a Muppet reference to in the first scene of this week's episode. With the 1972 release of Schools Out, they finally had a top 10 hit in the U.S. and a number one in the U.K. 
Cooper's onstage persona shifted from the androgyny of glam rock to the bratty machismo of heavy metal. Schools Out also won them the attention of morality crusaders, especially in the UK, and while it did not get them banned, it did get them publicity. Their next album, Billion Dollar Babies, was their most commercially successful record, hitting number one on both sides of the pond. They became one of the most successful touring acts in the US, with increasingly elaborate stage shows featuring special effects like a guillotine. By 1974, they already had a greatest hits album and a feature film. So, naturally, in 1975, the band broke up. At this point, Alice Cooper, the person, legally changed his name. Sounds like, primarily, that was a way to enable him to continue to record under the name Alice Cooper without having to worry about legal wrangling with his former bandmates. His solo debut, Welcome to My Nightmare, was a huge hit and featured Muppet Show guest star Vincent Price delivering some spooky narration. This spawned an ABC television special called The Nightmare, which starred Vincent Price as well, in a concert film called Welcome to My Nightmare. In 1976, Cooper married Cheryl Goddard, who was a dancer in his show. Although their relationships had its ups and downs, they remain together to this day, and they have three children together. He had his first bout of alcoholism and then got clean in 1978, inspiring a semi-autobiographical album written with Christie's favorite lyricist, Bernie Taupin, called mm-hmm. From the Inside. This is about the time he appeared not only on The Muppet Show, but also in the Bag of Cocaine films Sextet and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which we have spoken about at length on this show in the past. Despite his upstart image, Cooper had fond connections to old-school show business legends. He was friends with Groucho Marx, and he idolized Soupy Sales. When the Hollywood sign was in need of restoration in the late 70s, Cooper helped lead the fundraising charge, donating more than $27,000 himself and dedicating one of the O's in memory of Groucho. In the 80s, he relapsed with substance abuse, but then got clean for good. Much like Paul Williams, Cooper has gone on to mentor other rock stars who struggle with substance abuse to help them get clean. At some point after that, he became a born-again Christian, but it's not clear exactly when that happened. He also appears to be a Republican, although he's argued in the press that rockers should stay out of politics. Which I think is actually a fairly Republican point of view (laughs) in itself. (laughs) He continues to record and to tour to this day. His most recent album came out in February 2021, and his next tour begins this coming September. Uh, So that's a not very brief, but also not very comprehensive overview of Alice Cooper's career, because he really has not stopped working from the 60s to today. He has a huge discography, uh, you know, lots of other television appearances and movie cameos and things. Uh, Wayne's World is one that sticks out in my head. But of course, for me, I really primarily know him from The Muppet Show. This episode was paired with a Vincent Price episode on a special Halloween-themed VHS release when I was a kid. So one of the episodes I've seen more than most others. But I'm wondering about the rest of you. What is your relationship to Alice Cooper? Wayne's World. Yeah, the the first thing I think of whenever anyone mentions Alice Cooper, I see Alice Cooper is him giving a history lesson on uh, <laughs> the name of Milwaukee to Wayne and Garth. And I, I rewatched it earlier today and it, it's still very funny. <laughs> I don't know why I was surprised to learn that he is Midwestern himself. Like I, he just seems like he should be British. Huh? But he's so earnest though. Like, yeah. Like he doesn't have an accent. It just, I think just because I associate glam rock with great Britain, I just, I don't know. And I honestly have never thought too much about Alice Cooper. 
Well, and so much of his shtick in this era seems to be emulating Ozzy Osbourne. Right. I mean, poorly, but I mean, I, I think I prefer Alice Cooper to Ozzy Osbourne, so I don't know why I said poorly. But I mean, I think because like he's so doofy. Yep. <laughs> like with Ozzy Osbourne, I, I I sort of believe it more, and and I think that that makes him a good fit for the Muppets. That doofiness, but yeah, but he doesn't. He's not really scary. Alice Cooper's kind of like if a spirit Halloween store became a person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Alice Cooper actually broke through before Ozzy Osbourne did, but they were really contemporaries. Like, yeah, they, they were yeah, coming yeah. up at the same time. And it's a similar vibe, but just like executed very differently, yeah. you know, or, or like kiss, but like, you know, kiss have the, have the full, the full makeup to hide their faces. <laughs> so, in fact, you know. This upcoming tour he's doing is with Ace Freely from kiss. There you go. Uh, I, you know, we're, we're getting into the era of the Muppet show where I have vague memories of watching these episodes, if not in first run, then in very early reruns. And I don't, I don't really remember anything about this episode from that time. But I, I, like Alice Cooper is a person who the Muppet Show told me was famous. Therefore, he was famous. Like this, this is my association with him. And then you know later, Jesus Christ Superstar. But but uh, you know it's like oh he's that guy from the, the Muppet Show. That's it. Like that's the whole association. I forgot he was in Wayne's World. Yeah, I mostly just think about this episode. I'm, I'm aware of his music and I'm aware that he's done other stuff. I, I do feel it's important to note uh, for anyone who wasn't doing math at the beginning of the bio that he was 30 when he did this. I would have guessed 50. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> like, he's very nimble. He's very limber. <laughs> he's very physical. He's a little wrinkly. <laughs> but this is not the face of a 30-year-old. <laughs> and I am saying that as a 46-year-old. It's not, not, not buying it. <laughs> But he's still around and hosting a podcast. Yeah, it's doing great. Why don't you get me David, what do you think of the episode? I think it's a lot of fun. Maybe not one of the all-time greats, but and again, I, I have more nostalgia for this episode than for many others. But I, I liked it. My only complaint is that I don't think his songs are all that good. But I like what they do with them, so I guess that makes up for it. But yeah. Very happy to watch it a couple times this week. Michal? Yeah, similarly, I have some um, warm, nostalgic feelings about this episode. This is one that gets trotted out for compilations and for Halloween. And I've seen this more than many other episodes. And I dug it. I would heartily recommend it. Um, As Kermit pointed out for the Leo Sayre episode, it's been a while since we've had some good rock music on the show. Um. I, I like when the Muppets go rock and roll and it was fun to see what they did with Alice Cooper's numbers. Even if they, I think they could have been bigger and more elaborate, but this was fun. Christy. I really loved this one. I, I think the doofiness of Alice Cooper is a really fine pairing with the Muppets. I, I think he he's really committed to the bit and I think it sells it. Yeah. I, I just think it's fun. Again, I'm, I'm with David. I don't, I don't think it's one of the all time greats, but I didn't have any quibbles with it, really. Yeah, I, you know, I, I I said that I remembered Alice Cooper as a Muppet Show guest, but I had zero memory of a single thing about this episode, despite it, you know, being on DVDs that I own, um, which is usually a bad sign. But I I thought this was great. I kind of loved it. A couple weeks ago, I started ranking the episodes because I realized I was starting to forget the earlier ones, and I I should just start making a list, you know, before we finish. And I won't get into this every week because it's going to change, and also who cares. But 
it's just it's weird like it's hard to do <laughs> and like there's some recency bias and it's deeply subjective but it's interesting like where i i land on things because like this 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 episode meets all of my personal criteria for a great muppet show episode but i also pu- i put it actually below leo sayer which i think is an objectively worse episode just because <laughs> i had so much like i think because we had so much fun talking about leo sayer as part of it so that does, is actually like totally the wrong criterion but also, like, I don't know, I kind of like the songs a little better. It doesn't make any sense. But, like, I don't know. It's a great episode. I had a really good time. Alice Cooper, 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Cooper. Ready whenever you say, Scooter. <laughs> Sir, I think there's something you should know. Yes? These monsters aren't ours. I know. They're mine. <laughs> So in a nice change of pace from guest stars who are surprised to see their dressing room filled with monsters, Scooter is taken aback that this week's guest star has brought his own. Uh, let's hear from Statler and Waldorf for their first clip. Gotta admit, the opening is catchy. So smallpox. Not now. <sighs> Read the room. <laughs> and there are at least three, maybe four or more mentions of communicable diseases in this episode. It's just a lot. There's a lot going on. And now Gonzo. I have Rocky Top in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Should we explain? I mean, it's my fault. It's my fault that Adam has Rocky Top in his head because every time I read a headline about monkeypox or worry about monkeypox, which is becoming more frequent, I hear it to the tune of good old Rocky Top, good old monkeypox, monkeypox, monkey Tennessee. Tennessee. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> and now you all do too. It's infectious. Gonzo blows his trumpet and successfully produces a wavy blue apparition. It's pretty. Ghost Pope. It's surprising. Yep. (laughs) We have found a Pope. It's whoever's a blue ghost. Yeah, Muppet Joe backstage. Okay, so here's the theme this week. As much as Alice Cooper is doofy and approachable and works really well with the Muppets. The Muppets are scared stiff of him. Here's what we hear from Kermit at the top. Very special guest star, Alice Cooper! (laughs) That was Kermit doing a little gulp and shudder thing. It's a a little hard to hear with the applause, but I made a gif uh, for the the webpage, which you should check out, because it's real cute. (laughs) It's very cute. Um, And also the whole backstage is decorated with the Halloween campy type decor, but everybody's really freaked out about it. Boy, it wasn't spooky like this when Julie Andrews did the show. So you may wonder, as I've been wondering, why a cast of monsters and weirdos and talking pigs would be thrown off by a shock rocker who's not all that shocking. But maybe it's justified because uh, things take a sinister turn pretty quickly. Oh, this clip happens while there's a William Tell act on stage, so there are arrows flying into the backstage everywhere. Uh, yes, I have a friend that runs a service. He could guarantee to make you a uh, Yeah, well, uh, when, when I said I wanted to be a rock star, I was just sort of half kidding. I mean, oh, I, I'd like to be an astronaut, too. Well, then just cross out the word rock star and write in astronaut. <laughs> I don't think I want anything to do with it. Well, looks like you're stuck with it, doesn't it? You must be kidding. Why, how can he guarantee that? And what must it cost? So, yeah, Alice has presented Kermit with a contract from his friend that is now pinned to the wall with an arrow. 
The William Tell's son puppet is the creepiest thing I've ever seen. As humanoid what? muppets often are. I do, his face, it's, yeah, it's that human muppet. Not the shape of the face overall. Like it, Some of those just don't feel muppety. It's very smushy. I didn't care for it. It's fair. Also, do we know how they're doing the arrow effect? Because it really looked like they were just shooting arrows into the wall. That's what I assumed they were doing. Yeah. I mean, could be. After this all happens, Kermit looks at the camera and says, weird, weird show, which I like was a little callback to a recurring bit from season one where he's say, cute, cute, whatever. Cute, cute idea. Right, mm-hmm. which we found annoying at the time, but now that we've had some space from it, it was like a nice visit with an old friend. I didn't find it annoying at the time. Yeah, I always I, liked it. Just why I've kept I've... it on the soundboard. <laughs> I think I found it cute. Anyway, it's all good, clean, satanic fun until Gonzo finds this contract pinned to the wall with an arrow. Oh, that oh, that, that just belongs to Alice. That's, uh, oh, oh, you know the Faust story? No. Crazy. <laughs> Faust sold his soul to the devil and in return became very rich and very famous. And Alice says that this is that kind of a contract. Really? Why do I sign? <laughs> I've got to get a pen. Hey, give me a pen. Look, and I'll give you a chicken for a pen. I'll give you all my chickens for a pen. I'll sell my soul for a pen. No, I have other plans for that. You know, for kids. I yeah. feel like when we were kids, there were so many children's programs that used the Faust oh, legend as their like totally organizing principle. Right. And I remember at the time thinking like, I don't get it. I'm not doing anything. With my soul, like have it. I want to be a rock star or whatever. <laughs> like I, I'm with Gonzo. Yeah. I mean, the whole concept of selling your soul to the devil was like so prevalent, but I think because they never explained what that meant, because that's where it gets scary. Or maybe they just assumed that everyone was Christian and, and got well, right. gave hell stuff at home, which right. like, it's also I, where it gets religious. Yeah. Like, which like I never got. So like, I didn't, I didn't understand what it meant. Like that. It meant like, Oh, then you would spend all eternity, like being tortured in hell. Like no one explained that part to me. So I was just like, sure. Take it. Yeah. I guess if you stop to think about it, it doesn't sound worth it. <laughs> like it's hard to make the story work <laughs> unless you're, you know, 80-ish years on this earth seem much more important than eternity. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think that the the classic story is that whoever's selling their soul assumes that they can outsmart the devil and get it back. Oh, that'd be clever. I guess whatever media you were consuming at the time just never filtered its way to me. So I've not thought about the Faust story all that much. Something about specifically saying, you know, the Faust story is what (laughs) what stuck out to me, not the... the, right, the, the selling the soul, but the, that's what made it seem particularly funny in this not really children's show, but come on, it's a children's show. I mean, um, what's funny is that Gonzo says, where do I sign? <laughs> that it sounds amazing to him. Right. What's weird is given the context, you would think that Kermit would just say, you know, like damn Yankees. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it, it would have been pretty funny if Gonzo had been like, oh, like, like, like Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe. Oh, like that book that Melchior gets in trouble for reading in Spring Awakening? <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a quick moment in the dressing room where Sam the Eagle addresses Alice Cooper. Let me come right to the point. You, sir, are a demented, sick, degenerate, barbaric, naughty, freakle. Why, thank you. 
What is Sam hoping to get out of this conversation? I think he just needs to make his feelings clear. You know? Yeah, Sam, Sam got a Sam. <laughs> but I, I love this scene because while Sam is doing this, Alice is at the vanity fixing his eye makeup. And so first of all, I just like that because it's like he can't even be bothered to really engage with Sam. He's just doing his eye makeup. But I also think that it's a subtle way to send the message to kids who might be viewing that like, this is a stage act. Like he is putting on makeup. He's not like really a creepy demon who has black marks on his face. I don't don't know if that's intentional or not, but it felt intentional to me. In another dressing room scene, Miss Piggy shares a tender song with Alice Cooper only to discover that in supposedly making her beautiful, Alice has magically transformed her into a monster. Listen, Cooper, the deal is off. Make with a magic. Oh, all right. All right. No. All right. All right. And that's better. And, and, and you can tell your man I wouldn't sell you my soul if you paid me. What do we think Piggy was selling her soul for? Fame and fortune. She's a diva. Okay. That makes sense. But there was some kind of con happening there. Like, before they sing their song, Alice Cooper does this incantation over a candle. Right. Then they sing a song where he's what looks like singing with a monster named Beaky, which turns out we find out after the song to be Piggy. So. Yeah, and the incantation is about, like, how she'll be beautiful and nobody will ever call her ugly again. So it sort of seems like that's what she wished for. But Piggy would never wish for that because she already thinks she's beautiful. No, but the part about not getting shit from other people does feel like a thing that Piggy in her like most private of places would wish for. Possibly. And then also that scene it is a is a love scene. We'll get into it when we talk about the song. But I was like, did is this what she sold her soul to be with Alice Cooper? Because that seems out of character. <laughs> it just felt like it fell apart. Like the the song is great and the reveal is great, but then the second you think about it, it's is like, the wait. song great? I mean, the I mean... S- <laughs> no. Well, no. We'll get to it. It's but fun. The, I I really enjoyed the scene of the song. We'll get there in a minute. And that reveal is really funny. But then I'm like, wait, what was Miss Piggy of all people <laughs> selling her soul for? Especially in the context that we've just watched. That's the part that I didn't really understand. It does leave a lot of open questions. Yeah. It is cute that Alice Cooper then goes to a little two-way radio and says, boss, I couldn't make a sale. And the radio catches fire because his boss is angry with him. I also like how they, and I guess this is part of why they say the Faust story also, they never say the word devil in the entire episode. I guess not. The devil will feature on The Muppet Show. And he's in a devil costume in School's Out. But they... They say, you know, they sell it. They say, I'll sell my soul, but not to who. But, and he says, I have a friend. He says, boss. And they, and they reference Faust, but they never actually say the devil or Satan or any of that, which I'm sure is a very deliberate choice. Yeah. Let's get to the episode closing. Uh, we hear Gonzo's voice booming over the theater and we might worry briefly that Alice Cooper might've made a sale after all. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> This is the voice of doom! Sounds more like 
the voice of Gonzo. Gonzo, is that the contract with the devil? Oh, no, Kermit, it's worse than that. This is the bill from special effects. <laughs> and all the monsters and Alice Cooper do this, like, forehead palm thing. It's very cute. So I just got to rip the band-aid off right now. We have no songs from the public domain this week. What? I know. Not even allowed? It's sad and expensive, but you know. <laughs> we'll get through it. Better luck next week, public domain. Mm. What we do have is a lot of Alice Cooper songs. <laughs> Strap in. We sweat and laugh and scream here. Cause life is just a dream here. You know inside you feel right at home. Welcome to my breakdown. Welcome to my nightmare. That's the name of the song, not a general proclamation. <laughs> it gets kind of confusing doing research on Alice Cooper songs just because there is Alice Cooper the person and Alice Cooper the band. This is a song from Alice Cooper the person. And it peaked at number 45 on the Billboard Hot 100. And yeah, it, it's appeared on several Halloween songs list. And yeah, it, it's one of his, if maybe not his signature tune. Yeah, he wrote it with Dick Wagner and Bob Ezrin. And his band is sort of an interesting array of Muppets. According to Muppet Wiki, some of them are referred to as the Vile Bunch, uh, which is a, a name that they got in a 1981 Muppet Annual. Bob Ezrin, by the way, was the producer for most of... Alice Cooper's career for most of his albums. He refers to him sometimes as what George Martin was to the Beatles. Bob Esprim was to Alice Cooper. Hmm. So I've made a delightful discovery in the, um, the Muppets character encyclopedia. So there's a, there's a two page spread that's just called monsters, but because all of the important monsters get their own entries, this is real random. Uh, and it includes the vile bunch. And it says that after much soul searching, they gave up, I guess this means they gave up the show business, but it just says they gave up and opened a frozen custard stand near Devil's Tower, Wyoming. Sure. Why not? <laughs> Wouldn't you? Great. Silverbeak has his face polished once a week and Beaky was once nominated for a Fred Astaire award for best unexplainable creature. And uh chopped liver monster is also featured in this spread. And so I have just learned that the planet Zabar is located on the upper West side of the Andromeda galaxy. <laughs> Sure. But Chop Liver Monster is also in the band. Yeah, I kind of love that. I'm glad they found more uses for Chop Liver. It was great. So a couple weeks ago, I went to a screening at the Museum of the Moving Image of the Muppet Musicians of Bremen, and there was a Q&A with the aforementioned Bonnie Erickson. And she talked about the fact that they never threw anything away, um, that like Jim Henson specifically insisted on like everything. There was a giant warehouse somewhere and everything went into it because you just sort of never knew when 
you might want to use something or we, you know, we use something or be inspired. And I, and I thought of that when chopped liver monster showed up because like, what a great place to stick him in this band of, of weirdos. He, he fit right in. And I don't think, you know, a regular viewer in 1978 would have necessarily even clocked him as chopped liver monster. I'm charmed by this group of puppets, but don't you think this would have been a, a really excellent crossover opportunity for the river bottom nightmare band? So good. But yeah, this song definitely sounds like something that would be in their repertoire. So uh, I did a little more digging, and it seems like, uh, well, here here is a quote from Alice Cooper, and I think it's relevant to this number, but also to the question of whether there was anything satanic in his act. He said, at the time it was a sore spot, so the religious right immediately deemed me a demon, and there was nothing satanic about what we did at all. It was all pure 1930s RKO horror movie and comedy put together. But you have to remember, every time we got banned somewhere, ticket sales went crazy. The only thing I did deny, though, being a nice Christian boy, I said there's nothing satanic about our show. I grew up in a Christian home. I don't care if you don't like what we do. I don't care if you think it's stupid. I don't care if you think it's inappropriate. It's definitely inappropriate, but it's certainly not satanic. Uh, so that was in an interview on the 40th anniversary of Welcome to My Nightmare. Huh. This is sure. certainly not satanic. In fact, it's very stupid. Well, you see, like, the... Uh, the, I mean, it's, it's weird that he says archaic because they were universal. Universal, figures, but it is yeah. The you know the universal monsters thing coming through. He's dressed like Dracula, and it's he's doing sort of those silly like nineteen thirties poses. He looks so doofy, <laughs> and and I I mean I love this number, and I I, I really like the song actually, um, but like specifically the way that he is holding the cape he sort of never takes his hands off of the cape. And I'm like, well, that's not, that's not scary at all. Like if I, if I had to fight you, <laughs> your hands aren't free. You're holding that cape. Like, I don't know. I just found it. I found him so silly the way he was like moving. And I don't know, like. It not- almost makes me want to watch one of his concert films. Cause he did these like big elaborate stage shows that he was so known for, but like, was he more, comfortable on stage doing his own shtick or is this doofiness exactly what he did all the time i feel like it's you know like i i i dressed as dracula for halloween when i was like eight and like like that's what you do you know what i mean like like that's the costume that's the shtick and i feel like he's just kind of doing that i don't know i get i don't mind it i love this number i just like uh, the idea of it being scary is 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 funny to me well, so have we talked about the the album Welcome to My Nightmare? We haven't. It, it's sort of a concept album, isn't it? Yeah, so it's really interesting. It's it so it's uh it's a concept album where he plays the role of a little boy named Steven who has a nightmare. Uh and there is this like Vincent Price narration in it, which honestly I think is the creepiest thing about the album. But also, even though it is like firmly in his like heavy metal era there are also songs that like are almost show tunes in it like it's or at least like much more like 60s pop than than 70s heavy metal and i guess because i never really knew him beyond his reputation it was so interesting to me to to sit down and listen to this album start to finish and be like oh wow he he really did have a a wider range than I gave him credit for, but also like less scary and a little more doofy than, than certainly than like 
when I was a kid and was afraid of heavy metal because I, I thought it was all devil worship, whatever, like, like certainly not what I had ever imagined then. And, and I would say that if like if, Adam, if you like this number, like check out the whole album. It's, it's an interesting listen. Yeah. I mean, I did listen, I didn't listen to the album, but I listened to the, like some of the, um, like essentials playlist on Apple music and, and was really surprised by the range of it. I mean, it's also, that doesn't seem to be in any particular order. And so it's covering a, a wide time span, but, but yeah, like some of it is, is sort of, you know, gothy, not heavy, heavy metal. Um, but then there's, I mean, we'll, we'll get to some of it. There's a lot of real moist soft rock on there too. It was, <laughs> was not what I was expecting. Um, and I quite liked a lot of it. So. Yeah, I just want to point out that on the the Wikipedia entry for this song, there is an unsourced proclamation that the song itself mixes elements from disco, jazz, hard rock, and keeps a heavy yet funky beat. Sure. I was really hoping that there was a source for the heavy yet funky quote. but I don't I not see that. I'm not sure I hear the disco in it. Yeah. 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 Where do you suppose he got the name Alice? Oh, it's a family name. Mm. He was named after a maiden uncle. <laughs> That's the joke. Uh, so our, our our next song is something completely different. Never heard of it. Somewhere over the rainbow way up Just gut me with a rusty spoon, why don't you? Oh. Yeah, so it's another song about rainbows as rendered in the, the Forest of Despair by Robin. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? I mean, there aren't. There's this one. And then Paul Williams wrote a second one. That's it. That's not true. I will die on this hill. <laughs> I'm always chasing rainbows. There's a rainbow around my shoulder. Okay, but and what's on the other side, though? It's really just the two. The question isn't why are there so many songs about rainbows and songs that also are about what's on the other side. The question is why are there so many songs about rainbows and also, new sentence, what's on the other side? Is it one question or two questions? That's the question. We're getting into, like, punctuation issues. It is relevant because they are about to go film the Muppet movie, and this is basically the same thing, like yeah. staging wise. <laughs> it's it's real similar. Smaller cast. He's next to the water instead of in the water. Correct. Mm. Not a smaller cast. It's it's one frog and a rainbow. That's fair. No Dom DeLuise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if Alex Alice Cooper came up in a rowboat? <laughs> Alice you want to be rich North. and famous frogs? Just sign this contract. <laughs> I mean, would have worked. I'm sorry, Christy. Please tell us about Somewhere Over the Rainbow, a song we know nothing yeah. about. <laughs> so yeah, in case you're new to planet Earth, this is a song called Over the Rainbow. Uh, music by Harold Arlen. Lyrics by Yip Harburg. Yip, 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 yip. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, it was written for uh, a movie that you've also probably never seen called The Wizard of Oz. It won the 1939 Best Song Oscar, which 
is uh, really funny when you consider that the song was briefly cut from the film. They ran the movie for a test audience, and uh, one of the studio heads was like, this is too slow for kids. And a bunch of people fought for it, and it stayed. The same thing happened, or rather almost happened, to The Little Mermaid with Part of Your World. Jeffrey Katzenberg was like, was like, this is too slow for kids. And, you know, presumably, you know, Howard Ashman roundhouse kicked him in the face. And Jeffrey Katzenberg was like, I'm leaving. Yeah. <laughs> Taking my animators uh, with me. Point well taken. I, I will go ice my eye and keep writing your songs yeah so th- this is one of those songs that uh is at the top of many lists has won many awards it was ranked number one on the recording industry association of america and the uh, national endowment for the arts songs of the century list and it was also named uh the top song on the afi's 100 years 100 songs list uh top movie song i should say huh. And uh, fun fact, a Stradivarius violin was used in the original recording of the song, and it sold at auction this year uh, for over $15 million. Wow. Yeah, it belonged to a Ukrainian violinist named uh, Tasha Seidel, uh, who uh, did a lot of work uh, for MGM at the time. And because I'm a monster, I I brought a clip that is very dear to my heart related to this song in which the lyricist Yip Harburg explains the emotional genesis of it. I belong to a special tribe of what used to be called troubadours. Sometimes they were called minstrels. Now we're called songwriters. We work for, in our songs, a sort of a better world, a rainbow world. Now, my generation, unfortunately, never succeeded in creating that rainbow world, so we can't hand it down to you. But we could hand down our songs, which still hang on to hope and laughter, so that in times of confusion like these, when all the world is a hopeless jumble, And the raindrops tumble all around. Heaven opens a magic lane. Shit, man. Yeah, and then he proceeds to sing the whole song, and it it makes me weep. This was my my grandfather's favorite song of all time, and I I gave the eulogy at his funeral, and I actually quoted that speech. Oh, man. Yeah, it's special. So this performance, uh, Robin's performance, not, not Yip's performance, got me thinking about how weird it was that in season one, Robin, who is barely a character at the time, had this huge breakout hit with Halfway Down the Stairs. And then it took them like another season and a half before we got him a similar feature in the sense that it's it's a song that has kind of that same wistfulness to it. And it's weird that they didn't try to replicate that lightning in a bottle moment that they had with halfway down the stairs. I don't think that this is intended to do that. I think this is actually just, they wanted something to contrast the rest of the spooky episode. And this is about as far away from that as you can get, but it's probably says something about how like Jim had his eye on like the creative project and not the commercial project that, that we didn't get 
a hundred other songs between then and now of Robin doing sort of treacly children's songs. Yeah. How many other Robin features have we had? Just I'm five, right? Well, two lost souls. Yeah, but that's a that's a do. I mean, like they called yeah. him Mariah. well this is lovely it doesn't feel necessary um but it i I do think it's it's a nice entry to that same sub-genre of muppet songs like when uh sandy duncan and kermit and the color coordinated monsters sing try to remember so just before this song there's a moment in the canteen where Fozzie says, everything is so weird and spooky this week. I'm just going to sit in the canteen with these clean cut kids who also turn out to be whatnots with pointy teeth. So also effectively weird monsters. And he says, can't we just have one nice thing? And then they cut to this song. So is, is this a response to that? This is one nice thing? Yes. Great. I was surprised that this was not the UK spot. When I, when I watched this through the first time without looking at the wiki, I just sort of assumed that this is the part that you would cut if you were cutting apart. Yeah. Speaking of the UK spot. This is my once a year day. Once a year day. Felt the morning sun and knew that this was my once a year day. Once a year day. Even got a kiss from you. I feel like hopping up and down like a kangaroo. Jumping fences, climbing trees. What pleases me is what I do. Cause this is my once a year day. Once a year day, everyone's entitled to be wild. Be a child. Raise the roof. Once a year. It's once a year day, as celebrated by uh, the Vile Bunch and friends uh, in a, a spooky manner backstage. I love the juxtaposition of the uh, bouncy show tune and the, the spookiness. This gets introduced with a little skit where Kermit has a candle that seems to take on a life of its own, which creeps him out. And and then the the monsters sort of creep up behind him wearing masks and scare him away. And then when the song started, I let out such a guffaw <laughs> because <laughs> I just was not expecting this song. And I thought it was such a great like bait and switch moment. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's fantastic. I forgot this song was coming. Um, and then when it started, I was like, yes, I, I would have been looking forward to it had I remembered. <laughs> I have a special spot in my heart for the pajama game. But maybe that's because the pajama game was a thing in my family before I was old enough to understand any of the themes in it. I mean, it's a fun show. Yeah, so we should mention uh, that this is indeed from The Pajama Game, uh, written by Richard Adler and Jerry Ross. Uh, the Pajama Game uh, was from 1954. And we talked a little bit about Adler and Ross in the John Cleese episode when uh, Robin and Sweetum sang Two Lost Souls from Damn Yankees. This was the tragic partnership that only had the two big hits because Jerry Ross died at age 29 in 1955. But that, that's a bummer. But this number is not. This number is great. And... <laughs> Brings out a, a lot of our uh, favorite heavy hitters, so to speak, uh, like, including Thog. Yay! Uh, Thog, who is performed here by Steve Whitmire in his uh, first performance on The Muppet Show. When the candle is moving around the desk, uh, Kermit blows it out. And despite being very scared, 
does take a moment to look at the camera and say, think about that, friends, uh, like he did when he drank the milk in season one, which is a good bit. Uh, I watched it twice and couldn't figure it out. And then when I was making GIFs, I, I could see the angle of where it was being blown out from and that it was wrong. But it, it's, it's good. <laughs> good job, Muppets. I was convinced. No, it's, I mean, it's, it is very convincing. Like, even if you're looking for it, it's, it's pretty hard to spot. There's a great number. It is. One of the things that, that caught my eye during this, although it's not the first time we see it during this episode, is we have a ghost flying around, much like we did in the Vincent Price episode, but it is not kind of the friendly, cuddly ghost from Vincent Price. This one has more of a mummy effect going on, where it's like like shredded bandages instead of just lovely white sheets. So I thought that was an interesting aesthetic choice. Yeah, nice little extra spooky bit. Speaking of spooky... And also moist. <laughs> we get Alice Cooper in soft rock mode. I'd like to take you to him that would make my day complete. But you and me ain't no movie star. What we are is what we are. We share a bed, some loving, and TV. That's enough for a working man. What I am is what I am. I tell you, baby, you're just enough for me. So this is You and Me, uh, which is a 1977 Alice Cooper song. And uh, it hit number nine on the Hot 100 and uh, charted higher in some other places. Number eight on the Box charts number three in canada and number two in australia where it was the 13th biggest hit of 1977 and uh i have a question yeah why (laughs) (laughs) because it was 1977 yeah yeah but like listen we have we have shared at length our general admiration for slash love of adult contemporary so i think that i have some bona fides when i say like this ain't it. <laughs> oh, I like it. Is it the the melody or the lyrics that ain't it for you? Is it the we share some so love in an TV? <laughs> it's, it's not it's anything. So, it is so bland. <laughs> so it gets a, a, a little spicier in that there's some disputed lore around this song involving uh, none other than noted Joe Raposo, Stan Frank Sinatra. Alice Cooper has told this story in various places that apparently Frank Sinatra sang this song at the Hollywood Bowl, which there's no record of. I I went looking for it. I'm I'm very sad to report there's no record of this. And said something really encouraging to uh, Alice Cooper, like, well, Coop, if, if you keep writing them, I'll keep singing them. Or something like that. Something very Frank Sinatra-ish. But I found on message board a bunch of Alice Cooper fans fighting about this. Because this one guy was like, Frank Sinatra never sang You and Me by Alice Cooper. The the song You and Me that he recorded was a different song called You and Me. Which is true. He recorded a different song called You and Me. But the story as told by Alice Cooper was not that... Frank recorded it. It was just that he happened to perform it at a concert and there's just no proof. And so all these people are like, you know, well, you can't prove it and that doesn't prove anything. Blah, 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 blah. But anyway, I got really entertained. Uh, 
going down the rabbit hole of people fighting on the internet over whether or not Frank Sinatra has uh, ever sung this, you know, boring, goopy song. <laughs> I mean, if there was an Alice Cooper song that Frank Sinatra was going to sing, it would it be, be this one. one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's it. The Hollywood Bowl seats 18,000 people. <laughs> and Frank Sinatra, by this point, had was already like, you know, his third round of being a superstar. There's no way that he did anything in front of 18,000 people that wasn't exquisitely documented. So I lean towards he did not, but Alice Cooper liked the story. And so he kept telling it. Sure. I I don't fall on one side or the other. I I just find it funny that people are fighting about it. (laughs) So, yeah, so this is the the number we mentioned. That's uh, Alice Cooper and Piggy as Beaky. And, Beaky is a wild puppet. Beaky to me looks like if you were tasked with the job of constructing Big Bird from memory, but your own (laughs) tools were from the dumpster behind a party city. (laughs) (laughs) That's so accurate. You know the Star Trek episode, The Cage? Yes. No. It's like that. The Telosians put her together after an accident. This is the nerdiest thing I've ever said on this podcast, which is saying a lot. (laughs) They did the best they could do. I, it's not a well-constructed puppet. It's interesting. It's it, so interesting, but it looks like it could fall apart if you look at it wrong. Yeah. It really does. I mean, it answers oh, the man. question of what do you do if all that you have is a handful of feather boas and a fright wig and a machete. <laughs> build them into this puppet (laughs) you tie them all together i do love like is it does it have legs like because it's like lying down and it it seems like it has arms and legs they're all just feather boas you can't tell what direction anything is going in but it it has a sprawling quality that i I really like yeah i mean it's definitely something that bruce forsyth would want to fuck i know that <laughs> Leo Sayers trying to look up at skirt. Yeah. Oh, geez. What I appreciate about this scene, especially after after Leo Sayer climbing a tree and and Chris Christopherson and Rita Coolidge doing whatever was happening in that bar, is that <laughs> this is this is the thing, right? This this number, this is a song about about sex, and that's what's Television. happening. And, yeah, I mean, like, well, yeah, I want to talk about the lyrics in a second, but like, they're about to do something. <laughs> and it's a little weird for a lot of reasons, but I, I appreciate that they're finally just just not pretending that it's a song about some forest animals. <laughs> so there are two things that really jumped out at me about this scene. One is that this is taking place in the dressing room, which has been mostly redressed with you know, skulls and candles and things to make it more Alice cooper but it still has all the regular Muppet Show stuff there, too. So there is a framed photo of Scooter right over Alice Cooper's head for this entire number. Which Just is watching. Totally full focus. Why would it even why would that be there at all? I don't know. It's so weird. And then also, the singing voice for Beaky is Louise Gold, which I think is smart for two reasons. One, because she's a much better singer for this kind of number than Frank Oz is. And I think it helps land 
the surprise of the reveal when it turns out that Piggy is actually Piggy, because obviously when she speaks, she speaks with Piggy's voice. Yeah, for most of the number, you think this is just some monster that Alice Cooper got back to his dressing room, and then it turns out not yeah. to be. The lyrics to the song, this whole vibe is so at odds with the Alice Cooper goth scary stuff, because it's not just like a moist love song. It's like, it's so mundane, like on purpose, right? Like that's the story of the song, right? But you and me ain't no movie stars. What we are is what we are. We share a bed, some popcorn and TV. There's something about a working man in there. That's enough for a working man. What I am is what I am. And I tell you, babe, you're just enough for me. Like, this is not, the character in the song is not a rock star, let alone whatever persona Alice Cooper is putting on. And I'm so fascinated by that. By fascinated, do you mean bored? A little. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I like this song much better than the rest of you. But yeah, a little. It's a little, it's a little slow. Yeah, it's a little sleepy. Well, the good news is our closing number absolutely is going to wake us up. <laughs> All right. Well, we got no class. If we got no principle. If we got no innocence. We can't even think of a word to rhyme. School. School's out! The, okay, so before we talk about this song, I just have a really funny memory involving this song, which is that there was one year, last day of school, my dad picked my brother and me up from school, and he was singing this song, but it was one of those things where, like, he he started making up words, and for years I didn't realize that he'd made up words. It was just, like, one of those things where it was like, you know, he, he sang, School's out for summer, school's out forever! And the only thing that I remember uh, was no socks for next week. And I was like, what? <laughs> and like, I it was just like the pro- progressive, like, yeah, exactly. It was like, the, it just went on and on and on. And at the time I was like, that can't be the song, can it? But anyway, so I, I was, <laughs> I was disappointed that no socks for next week was not in there. So this uh, school's out, which uh, was the, the biggest hit for Alice Cooper, the band. It hit number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. And it's uh, number 326 on Rolling Stone's Pretty Terrible 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list that we have talked about at length that I hate so much. It's also on several uh, best glam rock songs of all time lists. And uh, it's from 1972. Yeah, and it's, it's Alice... And a, a bunch of the monsters having a romp. Some of them, some of them have adorable hats. Oh, they all <laughs> have adorable. adorable outfits. Yeah, yeah. Some hats are more adorable than others. Dog Lion is wearing this boater that's just the greatest, and Thog has this little puffy cap. What do you call that kind of thing? It's really like a, cute, like a tam, maybe, but like poofier. It's their hats are my favorite Muppets of the week. <laughs> They're so great. I don't understand why the clean cut kids from the canteen aren't in this. <laughs> yeah. Like they were only in that like two second bit. Yeah. Just to Seems emphasize weird. how everything is weird this week. Yeah. Can't put in all the monsters 
They're literal children. Seems like they should be in the school number. That's fair. I I chose that clip because of the lyric about the rhyming, just because like I appreciate how Alice Cooper is in on the joke. Yeah, yeah, right. Like it just goes to all everything we've been saying about his persona. He is also there's another really awkward costume moment in this. Much Are we like talking about the cave monsters tail sticking out through his shorts because that's really freaking awkward no <laughs> does he not have i meant alice cooper does he not have a hole for the tail is it he does but just, it's it's awkward it's ugly it's oh. tails through shorts don't tail shame him <laughs> it's not the tail that's ugly it's the the way the shorts are constructed that are ugly it's hard to find clothes for some people some body types david i suppose <laughs> uh no alice cooper starts this wearing um like a cap and gown um very um pink floyd the wall and then he removes it to reveal this devil costume. But he like telegraphs that he's going to rip it off for like 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then when he does, it's actually not very, um, very deft. <laughs> and then he does this very cute stage dive, like rolls over the backs of the monsters. Yeah, he does a little body surf for a split second. Yeah. But it's just like, again, like he's just, he seems like a very awkward human being in a way that I find very charming, but that is at odds with the whole spooky, scary persona. Also, the, it's, it's ostensibly a, a devil costume, but it looks very Richard Simmons. Yes. By devil costume, I mean red leotard, unitard. With a with tail. A, with the tail. And there's some fabulous boots that are part of this ensemble. The boots are great. It's also got holes in it. I guess he's just been through some shit. <laughs> or he used <laughs> to have tails. Badass because he's wearing ripped clothes. Exactly. Uh, we cannot talk about outfits without also discussing Mean Mama dressed up as a cheerleader, which <laughs> really I think takes this puppet to a new level. Tell us more. Great. She's got pom pom. She's got a bow. She's got a big M for the Muppet school i guess or monster or yeah something like that mean mama Uh, university right i mean the m is (laughs) multi-purpose i have a vintage tin that along the sides of it has piggy in a similar cheerleader outfit with with the the m so Hmm. nice presumably m for muppets this whole number just made me want to see this exact lineup of muppets remake grease (laughs) 2 do you have a cast in mind nope just put them in there and let them sort it out. <laughs> I mean, I think it's largely that the opening number of Grease 2 is called Back to School. So it always felt to me like a response song to this song. <laughs> School wasn't out forever. We lied. Right. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business? So in show business this week, we're going to continue our contagion motif. In Muppet Labs, Bunsen has rendered the microscope obsolete. Uh, With the new Muppet Labs germ enlarger, studying germs has become much easier, or has it? For years, scientists have had to study teensy-weensy germs under a powerful microscope. But now, the germ enlarger makes the microscope obsolete. (laughs) Comes out of your pay, Beaker. Baker just tosses a microscope over his shoulder and is then admonished right after Bunsen said this was obsolete. Um, Yes, the germ 
that they have in a dish gets enlarged, it engulfs speaker, they, it, this continues backstage. Kermit says, I hope that's not contagious. And Bunsen just titters at him, which maybe we'll see next week. They'll all have caught, what was it called? Strepto... Streptococcus yucotherium. That was the, yep. I'm reading that. I didn't, uh, don't be impressed anybody, but yes. It's a good little <laughs> good <bit>. reading. <laughs> this led me to some really deep and bleak thoughts about uh, the nature of germs and whether or not a giant germ would be more deadly than tiny germs. Because the whole thing with germs is that like, because they like get into your body and into your bloodstream and whatever. It's like, if, if it is giant, would it kill you or would it just be, you know, there hanging out? <laughs> well, in this case, it might try to strangle you. Or, yeah, I mean, this, this one yeah. definitely has nefarious uh, designs on Beaker, but... But yeah, I wondered that too. Would an enormous yeah. germ be harmless? Hmm. Well, it depends. Is it able to replicate the way that regular germs do? Because then it would take up all your space and suffocate you pretty quickly. But does it need to live inside a human body to replicate? Or does it just need, like, warmth and moisture? Because, you know, this weather we're having... None of us are doctors. <laughs> anyway, I thought this germ was very uh, moment <laughs> My only very important observation about this sketch is that every time Bunsen said German larger, I want to say, no, it's pronounced German lager. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't understand that. <laughs> Pressing on, we've got another ailment. So here's a sketch where we see what may be a mouthful of teeth, or it might be a cave full of stalactites and stalagmites. One of them starts talking about how he has a terrible toothache, but this may be the least of his problems. It's like having toothache all over my body. It's like having toothache all over his body. And another thing, and another thing, I keep hearing voices. And what's worse, and what's what's worse, worse, the echo is often incorrect. And sometimes, and sometimes it says what I'm going to say before I said it. It says what I'm going to say. Yeah, well. <laughs> the echo I joke is sketch. like yeah. aces, but I can't with this. This is it. <laughs> It, it creeps me out too much. Oh, this makes me so happy. It's so bizarre, even for the Muppet Show. I just wish they were teeth. <laughs> or that yeah. they were Muppet. Te- like, so it, it, the reveal at the end is that is that they're inside a larger version of the same thing. So, like, they are the teeth of another stalagmite. But it's still, like, a cave inside a cave and not... Like, not a mouth I, I don't want them to look like human teeth. We've established how I feel about mm-hmm. Muppets with human human teeth. But if it were like a monster, if the reveal were that it were a monster mouth, I think I would like it better. I just want it to make a slight bit more sense. I also think the zoom effect doesn't do it any favors. Like it, it doesn't actually feel like you're you're zooming out to the thing that's encompassing it. No, yeah. but I got it. Yeah, but I just mean like. They probably could have 
done that better. Certainly yeah. today they could do that better. Yeah. But I did like I the puppets are look so cool. Like whatever the fuck they are. Like they look really, really neat. And and I love the gag. I just I just wished it had had a better payoff or made slightly more dramaturgical sense because that's mean, what we do here. It's not supposed to make sense. It's this recursive bit that's gonna go on forever. True. Like you pull back and they're inside somebody else's mouth. And then then they start repeating the same sketch that they started right, already. Right. Like a circle and a spiral, like a mouth within a mouth. <laughs> uh-huh. So in uh, one final melody for the evening, let's talk about pigs in space. On the swine track, Captain Link Hogthrob is suffering from a mysterious space disease. And as unpleasant as I find Link, <laughs> it is actually really disconcerting to see him writhing around. But yeah, let's listen. Oh, Doctor, does he stand a chance? Well, I hesitate to try this shock treatment. It's very dangerous and it could kill him. Oh, is there no alternative? Well, you could give him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. You connect the wires, I'll throw the switch. They perform this procedure. Can you guys help me explain what this looks like? It's like Link becomes a digital white outline of himself. I think that's a very good explanation. Okay. <laughs> I, There's probably I feel like, a technical yeah. term for that camera effect, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's some camera effect. Like it's it's not anim it's not hand animated. There is some something no, it's generating like a heat map it. or something. Yeah. Part of me wonders if, if they discovered this effect by mistake. Like it feels like, you know, like a, an inverse of a a different camera effect. You know what I mean? Yes. Unfortunately, even though Link is cured and now he now feels more like himself, he has turned into what he calls a shell of his former self. His new condition is extremely contagious. He tries kissing Piggy, which, and transmits it to her. She becomes an outline as well. She punches Strange Pork and that gives it to him. The spaceship gets it too. The spaceship is this cool purple outline around them. So I guess that's it for them. They're going to be outlines forever. Mysterious space disease wins. That was Alice Cooper. You should see his sister, James Fenimore. So I had to look up James Fenimore Cooper. Uh, I learned that he was a writer. He was the author of Last of the Mohicans and that his father founded the town of Cooperstown. What did you think of that? Out of sight. You mean you liked it? No, it was out of sight. I had my eyes closed. For listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Tune in next week to hear our discussion about the Loretta Lynn episode of The Muppet Show with our special guest stars, Sam Schultz and Matthew Gatos from the Commitment Podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Tom Ryan Backus, and this episode was edited by me, David Levy. <laughs> By the way, to get these, I googled Alice Cooper in cahoots with the devil. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, speaking of in cahoots with the devil.